Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's one minute to four o'clock and thanks to Chris. Today, our immigration policies with Jack Smith from Project Safecom. Justice for El Salvador against Oceana Gold. We'll be hearing more about the court case and what's happening in El Salvador at the moment with Oscar Fuentes. History of slavery in the US with historian Brian McKinley and Port Phillip Baykeeper Neil Blake who will be telling us all the work that's being done round the bay, the big Port Phillip Bay to protect the environment and protect all the creatures who live there. Palestine National Day was held last Tuesday. Got there a bit late, but got there. And Samar Sabawi was one of the speakers there on that day. She's a Palestinian-Australian playwright and poet, and she gave a short speech, which I'll be playing. But first, he's back, Mr Kevin Healy. Here he comes. A week, Jane, listener, when who would have thought? Who would have thought? Not a grey hair to be seen, Nick Xenophobe of the modestly titled eponymous Nick Xenophobe Party and hang em high Darren Lynchum voting to smash evil unions and evil workers. Suppose the only who would have thought is why they bother wasting time by suggesting they're still thinking about whether they will smash the workers when there is never any doubt. Although Nick votes to smash only those workers who are evil who continue the dated rubbish about class war and class struggle and Nick's vote to smash unions and workers does not include good, good workers who, like Nick, are neither caring business class nor socialist who consider each issue on its merits before voting to smash anti-social forces like workers and unions. And anyway, there was no semblance of class war or class struggle in this case because the Minister for Caring Business Class Relations, Macadia Kosh, the workers, said the legislation to bash unions was not union bashing. There is a clear difference between bashing unions and union bashing. The words are in different positions for a start. Poor Devon argued the law did not go far enough. I can't see the essential clause that evil union bosses should never be released or, where appropriate, should be sent back to where they came from. And surely capital punishment should at least be considered. The poor Caring Business Class Party and the Caring Business Class are abraded by this silly socialist suggestion that maybe the Caring Business Class shouldn't be allowed to bring in as many workers from around the world and caring employers should spend more to train local workers. And abraded by the suggestions from the long-haired, commie, greeny, wooden worker and iron lots that Trublawazi should bring in lots of no-proper papers, queue-jumping, illegal boat people just because they have been found to be refugees fleeing, in many cases, the liberation we brought them through the coalition of the killing. We must be allowed to bring in, and we must be allowed not to bring in. And Caring Business Class spokesperson Innes Willax the Poor said caring employers must have the right to import labour because there were skill shortages caused by those locals who could do the work expecting to be paid for it. 
And when the week that was put to Innes that the pre-privatisation then public utilities used to trade apprentices and skilled workers, he made the sensible comment that that proved the shortages were the fault of the bloated public sector which had abandoned these responsibilities. Just losing the ownership of these utilities and lovely, lovely, valuable assets doesn't mean the government should not retain the training the workers for the new owners bit. We are the first to admit the government has a responsibility to fund the training of skilled workers for caring employers. Showing the super-efficient private sector does not say the bloated, inefficient public sector has no role in these matters. We are very open-handed, uh, open-minded. And to show the caring business class care only for their lazy, avaricious workers, what depths the caring business class altruism, thinking only of their caring workers, despite their workers, despite those workers so crucifying them day after day, only care for in the wake of USR big supremo elect Donald Trump or the poor's promise to lift the oppressed out of oppression by slashing caring business class taxes, retiring business. Profits Council Chair Catherine Livingstone the backs of, preparing to carry her chair to the which bank which used to be our bank back when it was so inefficient, declared it's not just best to cut taxes, it is imperative we must cut taxes. See, the Profits Council had been most reasonable. Agreeing cuts to the taxes they don't pay could be phased in, but in the wake of Donald's promise, the cuts must be brought forward. If our taxes aren't slashed, she explained with great sincerity, great concern, two blue Aussie workers will suffer. On Donald, we've all been impressed by the list of deep-thinking competence being mooted as his little helpers, including John Beltham, the former US of UN of the US of the UN of the World Ambassador, the neocons whose legacy is still being enjoyed across the Middle East and in refugee camps across the world, but no need for us to comment. The liberal US of journalist Glenn Greenwald summed him up succinctly this week. One of the most sociopathic warmongers on the planet. <laughs> no satire, sadly, direct quote. Yes, won't it be good for the world to have John back making the big train killer decisions? Although, just a little bit of wheat that was advice. I wouldn't be planning a holiday in evil, evil, evil Iran in the next year or two. On train killing, bringing the benefits of liberty, freedom and democracy, Western Christian civilization to the lucky but ingrate peoples of the Middle East, back here, Malcolm and the team have been urging caring employers to utilize the skills of former train killers. And there are some obvious areas where those skills would be invaluable. Debt collection springs to mind. The, sorry, forces of law and order. Or, I applied for this like you know job because like you know I heard you say you expected you know like to make a like you know killing great who do I have to know uh, you know like you know kill then he rubbed his hands together excitedly I'll get another you know like medal for like bravery like uh, yes, yes, uh, Robert. Uh, call me Basher. Uh, yes, yes, Basher. Unfair as it may be, there are laws about killing your enemy in this war, the war of commerce, but, but what other skills could you offer us? Oh, like I can just, you know, like 
break their arms, uh, kneecap them, uh, and I'm a, you know, like, deep thinker. Uh, yes, that should be another successful government campaign. And the government is also campaigning around mental health support for train killers and ex-train killers. But given that those who join the train killers do so to become train killers, then providing mental health support after they've enlisted to kill or after they retire would, I would have thought, be years too late. Get in before they join, intervene to stop anyone joining and problem solved. Then, if and when those who wish to pursue peace by a bit of invasion and slaughter wish to pursue peace, they'll have to head off themselves to do the invading and slaughtering, which just might make them think a touch more than once. On such matters, the treading water US Arb Secretary for Ruling the World, John Kerrying for the Rich, in Marrakesh at this climate change, which may or may not be climate change talk fest, treading rising water perhaps, anyway, John said, on the way picking up the Think Before Opening Your Mouth Award in a walkover, no one has the right to make decisions that affect millions of people based on ideology. He was talking about Donald's assertion that climate change is a Chinese conspiracy, so all those USR perpetual invasions and slaughters must obviously have nothing to do with ideology. John, your Think Before Opening Your Mouth award is on the way. Oozing logic over the Chinese conspiracy, our very own Minister for Fossil Energy and Fossil Pollution, Josh Fry dem Icebergs, was deeply upset at this report, placing Trublowozzi way up in 57th place in the developed world in addressing the conspiracy. Hard to believe a country whose minister, whose big supremo, whose government, whose responsible corporate fossils argue that beautiful lifting the world out of, out of poverty, coal will energise the world for the foreseeable future, however foreseeable that future might be, could land in 57th spot. Friday, icebergs exploded at this ignorant, unfair rating. The proof of our commitment lies in the results of our policies. He put them in their place. Good point, Josh. That commitment, those policies, explain why we've been put in our place to explain our 57th ranking. Helping environments around the world, as BHP for bloody huge profits, BHP Billiest Town's big supremo Jack Nastia led a minute's silence at the big no longer true Bluwazi annual meeting as a tribute to its human and environmental victims in Brazil. His sorrow, his sincerity, was palpable. Expressed without silence when Nastia declared bloody huge denied any wrong in the disaster, we deny all charges, he told the shareholders. Charges based on circumstantial evidence like reports going back years warning the disaster would occur unless Buddy Ute spent money to fix up the problems but did nothing about it. That is how obvious and what a tight defence. Well, watertight mightn't be the word given what happened. Accidentally happened, but they can say we did nothing about it because we did nothing about it. And obviously, obviously, doing absolutely nothing about something is doing something about something. What we did about it was to do nothing. Do nothing. Do. How dare they charge us with doing nothing when we did nothing? 
And finally, they didn't do absolutely nothing about it. Of course not. They called for a minute's silence for their victims. Palpable sorrow, palpable sincerity. But they do have a bottom line to think about. The victims must respect that. Good afternoon. And it's great to have him back. That's Mr Kevin Healy, and that was his week that was. And I'll be welcoming him back to tomorrow morning for City Limits on 3CR. There are more refugees and asylum seekers in the world today than the situation following World War II. 65 million people, in fact, and for mostly the same reason, war and destruction. But at least in Australia's case, we'll largely turn our backs and declare, not our problem, while spriting the lie that we are a country which takes more than our fair share of people desperately seeking refuge. I'm joined on the line by Jack Smith from Project SafeCom, a small human rights group in Western Australia. Well, of course, Australia is a world leader, and we're certainly a world leader in stopping refugees and telling them to go bugger off and go elsewhere. We see it now, of course, repeated in Europe. There are several European leaders that dearly want to follow Australia's example and call Australia a world leader in this respect. It's horrible because it all comes back again to World War II. Why did we have World War II? Why did we have the results of World War II? Because the results of World War II is the United Nations. Do not forget that the United Nations would not be here if we would not have had the fascism and the killings and the persecution and the racial stereotyping and superiority feelings of the great Aryan race, the Germans, during World War II. That's why we have the United Nations and a whole host of other things. It's not by accident that the International Court of Criminal Justice and the International Criminal Court is in the Netherlands, in The Hague. I grew up with that and I visited what we called the Peace Palace first as a seven-year-old. The mechanisms of international law and the international conventions for the elimination of all racism was one of the conventions Australia also ratified under Gough Whitlam. And we have the United Nations Refugee Convention, which Australia also ratified. And of course, for over the last 15 years, 20 years, the push first begun by John Howard and Philip Ruddock has been very successful in conservative politics. Basically, wherever they can, they want to fuck over the United Nations Refugee Convention and kill its impact on Australian obligations. And that's what we've seen over the last 20 years. Just like Centrelink has irrevocably changed after Scott Morrison got his grubby hands on the organisation and the legislation we now have in the Migration Act pertaining to the United Nations has almost been completely obliterated thanks to the dirty, stinking hands of our great minister, Scott Morrison. And that's what we're stuck with in Australia. We've consolidated our vehement hostility towards human rights under liberal governments consolidated our vehement hatred of refugees around Australia. And guess what? It's almost like in sync as the leader of the world. We see now the far right, the anti-immigration, the anti-refugee sentiment building up in Europe and in the US. It's very clear now that 
the election in the United States was won by the forces that are totally hostile to civil rights, equality before the law, the two precepts of the American Constitution, and it will be completely undermined as far as the Trump government is concerned over the next four years. God forbid whether he gets re-elected in four years' time. But we also know that only 25% of Americans voted for Trump. So the other 75% will probably see one of the biggest civil rights movements in uh, Western history. There will not be just protests and rallies, but in typical American fashion, just ask the rhetorical question, how many uh, blockbuster movies can you make in four years' time under a Trump government? And what will the reaction be of the Trump government? Will he try to kill off the Hollywood forces? He doesn't have the guts, and he doesn't have the resources. Hollywood and the civil rights lobby in America will be stronger than ever before, I think, and it will be a massive wake-up call to all the racists right around the world. Barack Obama has already said to activists over the last couple of days, I cannot say everything to you right now because I'm still a sitting president, but we'll speak again in January. So he is already committing himself to being a main operator in this new civil rights movement in the US. That's all going on in the world between the forces that work on the conclusions of World War II including the United Nations conventions and international law, replicated in America by the civil rights movement and the equal before the law forces and the arrogant business forces, which combine anti-climate change forces, pro-business forces, pro-fossil fuel mining forces, the pro-gun lobby and the anti multiracial platform people. There are still people that think that, they won't say it in America, but really the blacks should be second rate or third rate citizens. And it starts with, you know, let's talk about Muslims, let's talk about Mexicans, we're all criminals. But these forces, these right-wing forces, are not just really extreme, but also totally loopy. And that's the saving grace because they're t totally loopy. They're not on the side of rationality. They're certainly not on the side of decency. So there's a lot of work at hand in the US, and that's probably the model that we need to maintain in Australia as well. We need to keep fighting for this decency platform, that inclusive platform, and that platform which ultimately is a platform of inclusiveness and true globalization and true equality of all races and religions totally valid the united nations conventions for equality before the law and equality of all races and freedom of religion are as valid as they were ever before and that's what we have to work so we got the international law on our side we've got decency on our side and we have the love of all people on our side do you see a dilemma of sending our asylum seekers to the u.s Oh, there are several dilemmas. I mean, f let's not forget, and I haven't found anybody who actually responded to that. I put it out quite widely on Twitter and Facebook. We should not forget that the United Nations has always been the independent big nation, the independent powerful nation. And guess what? The United States is not a signatory to the United Nations 
Refugee Convention. Nobody knows that. America has never acceded to the United Nations Refugee Convention, has never ratified it. It's only acceded to the 1967 additional protocol, but it has traditionally been a country that does, quote-unquote, the right thing by refugees. It's been the country of the huddled masses, if you look at the inscription under the Statue of Liberty. America has always done the right thing, but it has never been part of the countries that accept full authority of the United Nations. It's uh, tried to be independent and unaccountable. It's been getting away with it up till now, but of course it has implications. We are sending people to America who are all probably permanently damaged as a result of our treatment. And because America hasn't signed the Refugee Convention, it has no legal obligation under the UN Charter to provide extra care and assistance to uh, those who we are sending. So what happens to them there? At minimum, it's probably better for you to sit on the footpath in New York with a cardboard sign begging than in Phnom Penh or in Cambodia or Malaysia. America has many good aspects to its society for refugees, but the total package assistance that we need to demand from any country now because we have damaged these people. A package of counseling, integration assistance, language assistance, probably um, psychotherapy assistance. So the, the enormous damage that we've done to those people while holding them in offshore detention can be uh, dealt with. But Jack, even the people in America don't have those services. I know, exactly, and that's the problem. America is not a social welfare System. It's an independent living system, American society. Those services are present, but they all are private providers. And we should, um, at the moment, only uh, let people loose in a society where we can guarantee their support, their total support. So it's got many positive aspects. It's uh, certainly better than locking people up on the rue and menace, but it's certainly a very risky thing we're doing. I imagine it's also pretty risky sending them to Malaysia. Well, that's right. Of many countries, I'd say America is a better option because it includes a lot of freedoms and opportunities, certainly economic opportunities. But we're only doing this because we're washing our hands off people. And that's the motive. You know, this government is not trying to do the right thing by uh, asylum seekers. It's um, trying to offload a problem we've got now. And the size of that problem is increasing every week, every month. And what's going to happen once Julian Triggs is gone? We'll probably have a, a, a lackey, a conservative-leaning lackey, appointed as a human rights um, commissioner and the chief of the Human Rights Commission. Of course, that is if this government survives for another year, because we should not forget that the government is in a very precarious situation and it could just fall. But if they survive, they will do another George Brandis. George Brandis will make the choice and it will be somebody who is totally subservient to uh, conservative governments, which is almost an impossibility for a human rights commissioner because there's a lot of evils and ills to attend to and the hostility to human rights is kind of at the foundation of conservative politics in this country.
like it is in most countries in the world. So it will be mission impossible to find somebody who both is outspoken and says the right things and gives attention to the right things and is acceptable to this government. There's not a lot of room for Abbott to move in, is there? There's no room for anything. The only solution, and I'm totally, totally biased, the world starts looking better in Australia if we kick out liberal national governments. There should be no liberal national governments in control of any state or on federal level in this country. That is always where the country and its human rights record gets destroyed and obliterated, where the hostile forces to human rights are on the ascendancy. And it's not surprising that um, with the Conservative government in power, we see the rise of the Pauline Hanson party and the, the far right. Kind of almost by definition, this happens. It happened during uh, John Howard and it happened now during Malcolm Turnbull. But it takes such an effort to wind back what they bring in. Exactly. For once this week we could see that Labour actually opposes something about refugees. The new shocking bill that uh, intends to bar anyone who came by, ever tried to come to Australia by boat from ever visiting Australia in the future, whether it's 60 years or 80 years from now or uh, next year. It's a shocking bill, and for the first time in in a very long time, Labour is actually voicing quite openly total opposition to this ridiculous bill. So for the first time in a long time, we've got Labour acting as an opposition in asylum seeker issues. Very small platform, but at least they're doing that now. It's probably indicative of a change in the wind and in the mood, and as we know, politicians always move with the wind or with the mood. And Labour is a more progressive party than these horrible Conservatives, so they will move, although incrementally, in more decent ways than uh, Conservative governments. How are you going in Western Australia with your Conservative government? I think they're on the way out. With a bit of luck, in March, we'll have um, the Barnett government um, obliterated. Not radically. It was a year ago that it looked like it would be a radically different election than it would be now. I think a lot of uh, members of the Conservative government will hang on to their seats. But um, with a bit of luck, Labour will be in power in uh, Western Australia in March. And who is Labour in Western Australia? It's um, Mark McGowan, who is, if anything, he's a totally loyal and hardworking public servant in his identity. So he serves the people. That's his main slogan as well. Not, he won't use this in an election slogan, but his ethics are determined by being a hard worker and a servant of the people. And it's a very lovely platform. He's a very lovely man who has been concentrating a lot about increasing public transport and trains and not buses and trucks. So it's, again, this old division between the Conservatives and Labour in Western Australia is about public transport, Labour for rail, and that's not polluting the environment, and... Uh, the Conservatives, Colin Barnett, about uh, trucks and cars and buses, totally polluting. What about the Aboriginal people of Western Australia and their high imprisonment rate? There will be more decent developments under Labour, but will be slow. But at least Labour is happy to open its eyes for what a modern society demands of our response to Aboriginal people and our walking hand-in-hand with Aboriginal people. There are two worlds now in Aboriginal Australia. It's the downtrodden and uh, the damaged societies and communities, 
and there are a lot of people that are highly successful now in academic work and uh, and careers. We're a long way from where where we were um, 25 years ago when the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody was established as a result of events in Roburn in Western Australia. But there is a lot of work to do and it's now the most vulnerable Aboriginal people that need to be embraced by governments and will not happen under Conservative governments. It needs more progressive governments. And I think, Jack, we have to acknowledge that climate change is a, a human rights issue. It definitely is. It's the right to have a decent environment. But of course, we know that climate change now on a worldwide basis is totally compromised by the political hacks that are trying to um, oppose any progressive changes. That includes good things. In a lot of ways, it's really a good thing that we have state governments as well as a federal government because we now see, of course, that right around the country, state governments have done a lot more for climate change than uh, any federal government actually wants to do uh, because we have an enormous amount of um, alternative forms of energy now being used on a permanent basis in, uh, in most states. Western Australia also is one of the highest users of um, solar power. I've got the panels on my roof and many other normal people have um, solar panels on the roof and I've said to uh, the Greens in preparation for this election, you need to ramp up not what you already do in terms of climate change, but you need to remind all the voters that about um, 60-70% of the population of Western Australia is um, hosting a power station and the collective energy generated by all these households on their roof amounts to one and a half to two power stations that conservative governments do not need to build. The electors need to remind their governments of that. There's now a trend to convince everybody that you shouldn't get paid for um, generating power. Well, we should, because we are building the power station that governments don't need to build. And they're not in a plot of land, but they're on our roofs collectively. And we need to be honoured for that, and it needs to be acknowledged. There's lots going on, and um, I'm there's sure a lot going on, definitely. And, and next year is going to be a busy one for you, I'd imagine. It is, but also I'm very slowly retreating into retirement. Yes, and what's retirement going to mean for you? No longer be an active person who speaks out on all kinds of occasions about these issues. I can't imagine that. <laughs> I can't either, but I'm trying. <laughs> I'm sure I'll be speaking to you next year. All right, okay. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you, Jan. Bye-bye. Bye. Yes, I'm pretty sure that Jack Smith from Project Safecom will still be around fighting the fight, good fight next year on 3CR and on many other media outlets, particularly on Facebook and Twitter, I'm sure. 29 minutes past four o'clock. Solving our job agency crisis, an unemployed workers' union event. This Sunday, 27th, 2pm to 6pm. 2pm, job agency stories from both sides of the counter. Soaring penalties and bullying in a no-jobs market. 3pm, launch of the unemployed workers' union hotline report, followed by refreshments. 5pm to 6pm, panel discussion. Free unemployed workers' rights booklets will be available. Solving our job agency crisis. This Sunday, 27th, 2pm to 6pm. Unitarian Church, 
110 Gray Street, East Melbourne. Unwaged free, $5 waged. Unemployed Workers Union, a 3CR supporter. Just over a month ago, an international tribunal dismissed a multinational mining company's demand that the government of El Salvador pay $305 million in compensation for refusing to allow it to dig up gold. Oceania Gold was ordered to pay the Salvadoran government $8 million to cover the majority of the country's legal costs, and the fight goes on to force the company to pay. Yesterday I spoke with El Salvadoran activist now living in Australia, Oscar Fuentes. Oscar, the, the issue over the past year with the tribunal case has been mining in El Salvador and the attempt by Oceanic Gold to open a mine. Can we look further into the situation in El Salvador and neighbouring countries of Central America, countries wracked with civil wars for decades, over a century of US aggression, murder, oppression and countless deaths. What do you know of the history of multinational mining in Latin America and the consequences for the people in those affected countries? Look at the situation in El Salvador is that especially the Central America, which a country every country has its own mining operations which are some of the previous government were given license just to carry out the exploitation of these minings. We have Guatemala, Honduras, Nicaragua, El Salvador, which is not far, which uh, before uh, previous Canadian companies were operating, but that was many years ago. They closed the mine and they left the country. So the same thing happened in Honduras and also in Guatemala. This is uh, a bit of past history, but the problem is that the population, especially I'm talking about El Salvador, which didn't have, uh, you know, in big scale, the mining operation, which uh, they didn't know about how they're going to be affected or anything like that. We are not a country which are mining experiences like uh, Chile, Peru, and other countries in South America or Mexico. So I think that's the situation, bit of history in uh, Central America, because, um, I mean, previous government obviously what I said before, was giving free uh, access to big companies coming to those countries. So, But now, which is totally different because, well, a uh, situation in which uh, the environment, which is now people become very conscious about the situation, situation which is water is one of the, princip- the main sources to survive in those countries because of... Uh, our previous situation, which uh, they didn't have they didn't much rain, which were affected, you know, rivers as well, you know. So I think uh, this is a big, big and complex uh, situation. Can you talk a little bit more about the consequences for the people of those okay. years of mining? Yeah, the consequences mainly is about the uh, water, you know, and poisoning uh, the uh, main rivers of the country, especially in El Salvador, which uh, we are small country. The, the uh, population, the, the, the large population depend on one main river, which is the, the Rio Lempa. These uh, people use water for irrigation, even drinkable water, and also the other rivers, you know. So I think uh, <clears throat> that's one of the main also previous tests 
they found that uh, people they started getting sick, you know. So, and then th- th- that was a huge, you know, ask for the current government just to carry out and and to look after those people who uh, get uh, ill because of the uh, the mining uh, operation that was spending money just to pay, you know, from the health service to cover those uh, um, uh, uh, operations, those situations. There's a lot of mountainous country in El Salvador. Does that mean that when they had these mining operations, they had to build dams and that the problem with the dams? Maybe the dams leak, the dams break? Yeah, because, I mean, the terrain of the El Salvador, which is a Apparently we have a, a problem with the recording there. I'm not quite sure what has gone wrong, but we'll see if we can sort something out. Unemployed? Underemployed? Receiving Social Security? Getting bullied, penalised or harassed by your job agent or Centrelink? The Australian Unemployed Workers Union is for you. You have rights. Find out more or get involved by going to our website on unemployedworkersunion.com or by calling our National Advocacy Hotline on 03 83 It's time to fight back. A 3CR supporter. Get up, stand up. Stand up for your right. We'll leave Oscar for the moment and try and find out what the problem is. And before that, we'll talk to Brian. Moving now on to our history segment with historian and author Brian McKinlay. Last fortnight, Jan, when I spoke on your program, I looked at the events in the 1920s and 30s in the United States that led to the creation of a... Uh, an American fascist movement, which was cut short, of course, its life was cut short by the fact of World War Two, as well as the fascist movement being completely swept away by the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, which brought the United States into the war. The other thing was the very resolute opposition to fascism at every level by President Roosevelt, who was one of the greatest of American presidents, and his pretty formidable wife, too. Uh, They were never in doubt where they stood on this issue. Now, there's always been in the United States far-right groups, especially in the South. And if you think about it, the first fascist group in the United States, which at first seems a bit bizarre, but that's the Ku Klux Klan, who are holding a rally on December the 3rd, and this rally will celebrate the election of Donald Trump because all of the far-right groups in the United States are united in supporting him and uh, that's a fact of life. The Ku Klux Klan is interesting historically because it was created by right-wing racist groups in the American South after the Civil War, which was in 1860 till 65. 
the Civil War saw the defeat of the Southern Confederate regime and it saw the end of slavery and the millions of slaves who had been worked in the United States for two centuries really were emancipated by Lincoln now that meant of course they were free to do what they wanted but of course most of them were illiterate uneducated in the true sense of the word had no skills other than picking cotton or working the plantation fields and they didn't have a penny of their own and they had no chance even of leaving the plantations many of the slaves after the end of slavery simply worked on the same plantations though technically they were now free and many did move into cabins and shanties around the area none of them had access to land ownership none of them had money even the cost of moving away to some other part of the United States was beyond them because all they had was very limited job skills. Slavery was a an ancient institution. We tend when we think of slavery in this context to think of the United States but slavery was common across from the 15th and 16th century across the whole of the Americas but in ancient times uh, slavery was common. The Roman Empire existed on slavery of other, not black generally, but European white people. Slaves might be men who were captured in war or bought in conquered countries. We know, of course, there was even slavery in ancient Egypt. So human beings taking control of other human beings and subjecting them to all sorts of tortures and uh, treatments is a very ancient and terrible practice really but slavery in the americas really started with the early developments by the spanish and portuguese the portuguese founded what we know as brazil and the spanish conquered all of latin america from mexico right down to argentina the two crops that needed uh, and required the work of people to harvest them because of their nature was sugar and cotton. And cotton was found to be ideally suited to a number of places, but especially the southern states of the United States. Cotton doesn't grow well in cold climates, and so the warm climate of the south was ideal for cotton growing. The same was true in Brazil, uh, where an enormous amount of time and money was taken up in clearing the jungles to grow sugar. Now, Europeans, like people everywhere, got a taste for sugar in the Middle Ages. Sugar had originally been grown by the Chinese. It had penetrated the Arab world, been grown around the Mediterranean, but the Americas were a better, and especially the West Indies, were a better place to grow sugar than anywhere else. So uh, slaves taken from Africa by European powers were the answer to the problem. Somewhere in, in the next two centuries, from about 1650 to about 1850, it's assumed that about 25 million slaves were taken from Africa by force, loaded aboard terrible ships, and crossed the Atlantic to all the places in the Americas where there would be work for them. In fact, 
the British originally took slaves from Scotland and Ireland, convicts, people who had, had opposed and taken part in rebellions in Ireland and Scotland, were deported. Cromwell, in the 1640s, put down the largely Catholic areas of Ireland in a great struggle of the Irish for freedom, but he deported a great number of Irish men and women. The women were especially prized because they were taken to the West Indies and enslaved as Europeans, of course, and they made excellent domestic slaves, but many of them were given over as a prize to the black men who'd been brought from Africa, and the ships bringing the slaves were overwhelmingly carrying men. And so women were a bit of a luxury these Irish women were taken, about 25,000 of them, to the West Indies where they were passed over uh, to be the de facto wives of black slaves on the plantations. And these poor women had no, not a common language with the men who took over their lives. But very soon, of course, they were burdened with children, many of whom died, but a great many of whom have survived. And in the West Indies today, most people in a place like Barbados or Trinidad, if you do the DNA testing that's now possible, come up with a surprising 5 or 10% of ge genetic structure that's Irish. That's not surprising. But nevertheless, uh, slavery in all its forms existed right across the Americas. And it was the work of the European powers and the market was European. Britain in the 17th century, with the invention of spinning machines that would turn the cotton into linen, into fabric, embarked on the Industrial Revolution. So slavery was a major factor in the Industrial Revolution. And we shouldn't forget the fact that industrial capitalism was largely founded on the work of slaves producing the cotton which when shipped to Britain made the industrial revolution in its early phase very possible and the same with sugar of course sugar was uh, a thing which people everywhere craved in the early days sugar was taken to give you an example of this in in 17th century Paris Sugar was so expensive that you went and bought it at the chemist or the pharmacy because you people saw sugar to have, they thought, a medicinal use. And indeed it has. If you think about it, every time you get a cough mixture of some sort, it's likely to be a product that is sweet. In America, the, uh, at the time of the War of Independence, there were less than a million, but just about a million slaves in the United States. Now, over the next 70 years, slavery was banned by the British to their credit. In 1808, the British government told the British Navy to stop slave ships operating on the Atlantic. Well, in America, they turned in the southern states to the obvious. If you can't bring in slaves, breed them. And this led to an enormous expansion on the plantations of producing babies. In fact, Benjamin Franklin, one of the American founding fathers, remarked in uh, just in 1800 at the time of the uh, 
abolition of slavery that the breeding of slaves, of babies who were of slaves, was approaching one of the major industries of the state of Virginia. These children were then taken away from their mothers, often they didn't know their fathers, and sold in slave auctions, which were held every week. And you could pay a good deal of money for a good slave. And uh, many people went out and looked for young men who had all the physical characteristics. They were strong and healthy young boys in their late teens and early 20s. And these were referred to in the language we use today to describe the practice of breeding animals. I mean, today... We do the same, of course, with horses and cows and sheep and and, uh, cattle breeders today do as they've always done, pick out the best animals to breed stock for the next generation. Now, this was done on a vast scale right across the United States. On many plantations, there were a number of young men whose job it was to see that the young women slaves on the plantation, some of whom were in a kind of marriage, were nevertheless impregnated by men who were picked out by their owners as having good physical characteristics. One young man on one plantation in Virginia was credited with having fathered over 200 children. And this wasn't uncommon. Many of these lads would have dozens and dozens and perhaps hundreds of babies which were a product of their liaison with black women. Now, black girls were expected to be pregnant as soon as they came to maturity at 13 or 14. Most black women by the age of 20 had had four or five babies and having a baby a year was seen by their owners as normal and many women of course had vast families but then they would be taken away and sold and there are piteous accounts by the way of children who had no idea of what was going to happen to her suddenly taken away from their mothers at 10 or 12 and sold in the auctions and never to see their mother again and perhaps sold to someone from a neighbouring state And, of course, slaves couldn't leave the plantation for a number of reasons. They would be seen on the roads. Slaves never went anywhere without their masters. And they were all branded and marked. Some wore collars. All of them were easily identified. And so it was very, very difficult to escape. And punishments were severe ranging from flogging to all sorts of things like starvation for a few days and all and cutting off ears and the worst and most feared punishment for men was castration sometimes even hanging for committing certain defenses so along with the institution of slavery you had this terrible uh, cruelty and complete lack of human rights. In 1831 in Virginia, there was an uprising on a plantation after particularly harsh treatment, and and a rather charismatic young black uh, led the rising. He became famous for setting up an uprising that swept right across Virginia, and it went on for weeks. Now, as you could imagine, the event was uh, met by 
absolutely ferocious repression. Hundreds and hundreds of slaves who took part in the uprising uh, in Virginia, led by this man called Turner, were executed, were hanged. <clears throat> Many of them were beheaded. And in Turner's case, he was hanged, then he was beheaded after death, and his body was chopped into four portions, and they were set up along a roadside, which still bears the name of Blackhead Road. This was not uncommon uh, to discourage everybody, and especially to discourage the slaves, against any kind of uprising. Now, Gradually, of course, in the United States, in the northern states, the harshness of the treatment of slaves set up a movement led by a whole range of people to force the southern states to abandon slavery. And, of course, Abraham Lincoln was the most famous of these people. Books were written. Uncle Tom's Cabin, a now forgotten drama, a sort of soapy in a way, became a best-selling novel written by an American woman, Harriet Beecher Stowe. Millions of copies were sold in Britain as well as America and anywhere else around the world, I guess even here at the time and in the 1850s when she wrote it. And that kind of action was a, a thing that prompted the rise of the anti-slavery movement in the United States. Now, not in the South, but in the northern states, and eventually the election of Lincoln and the Civil War ended slavery. And out of that, <clears throat> in the years ahead, came a terrible division in the South. Blacks were really little better off, and it's there that the Ku Klux Klan appeared. Now, the Ku Klux Klan was really a fascist terrorist organisation, and it did all sorts of things. It drove out white people who were sympathetic or, or who tried to be sympathetic to blacks. Their main skill was lynching, in which blacks who had too much to say, uh, who had any political ideas, would be dragged from their homes in the dead of night and lynched by being hanged from a tree. But even in the 20s and 30s, lynching was still common in the South. It's estimated that between the wars, about 3,000 blacks were lynched in the southern states, sometimes in terrible conditions. They weren't always hanged. Some of them were burned alive on bonfires. This long history of slavery and the terrible events associated with it is really part of the, what the Americans would call the American dream. But today, of course, the, the black population of America who have survived all this and in the 60s, in the time of Kennedy and Johnson, the civil rights movement under Martin Luther King, and if you think of it, Kennedy and his brother, uh, who were very, very much opposed to the whole treatment of blacks in the South, uh, were both assassinated, as was Martin Luther King. But Johnson, later to his credit, passed a whole range of legislation making sure that blacks in the South could vote, which they couldn't do generally up till then, and uh, giving civil rights to them. That's made a great difference to the conditions, the political conditions, I mean, of blacks in the South. But at the recent elections, every state 
in the South returned a right-wing Republican senator. There wasn't a single state where the Democrats elected a candidate, and there wasn't a single state where... Uh, well, there were a few instances, but basically the black population in the South is affected by a gerrymander in the House of Representatives. Black districts elect blacks, but nowhere else. There's a complete division in the South between the politicians on the basis of race. And uh, this is true that the Republicans hold all the Senate seats and every state without exception. And uh, this time they carried the House and they carried the presidency. Hillary Clinton didn't, as she hoped, win North Carolina, which is one of the more liberal of the southern states. And nowhere else in the South did, did she come within a, a bar of beating Trump in any of those states. So that great range of states from Virginia south to Florida and west to the Mississippi are today as divided racially and politically as they've ever been. And so the facts of slavery are still a part of the American way of life. And as I said at the beginning, this man called Spencer, who's a uh, no doubt a fascist, as is Trump, of course, and all those around him, Trump, in many ways, is like Mussolini, perhaps a bit like Berlusconi. After all, a pretty recent attempt at fascism in Italy. Uh, he's a blustering, bullying, loudmouth, as was Berlusconi. I think the media here has talked about Mussolini, but they've forgotten about Berlusconi. Today, the United States is now as divided on the issue of race as it ever been, because the white working class males especially flocked to Trump's banner right across the heartland of America, the small industrial towns and rural towns which have been pretty badly hit by global free trade and globalisation. They turned away from the Democrats, and these were often working class people, often very poor, uh, with low incomes, if any. They turned to Trump. Often in history, we see this sort of working class uh, turning away from the sort of politicians you might think were their natural allies to vote for fascist groups. This, after all, was the pattern in places like Italy and Germany. And so in the United States, with this long history of slavery and racism, which is still vigorous and alive, more so than any other Western country, the whole issue of, of a fascism, which has a sort of racist base, is very much part of American life. I did mention earlier in the program that slavery was common to the Americas, uh, as it had been common uh, in the Mediterranean countries in ancient times and in other parts of the world too. But Brazil is an interesting case, quite apart from the United States. The Brazilians, uh, as I said, like the British and the French and others, brought slaves to the United States and to the West Indies uh, for the cotton and sugar trades, and Brazil did exactly the same. But in Brazil... Uh, slavery persisted long after the American Civil War. Slavery wasn't finally abolished in Brazil till 1888, 
Now, if you think of it in Australian terms, that's the Australia of Henry Lawson or Andrew Patterson, of the early labour movement, of the early pioneers like Deakin of Federation. That moment when Australia was moving towards independence from its old colonial status and being a collection of British colonies to being a commonwealth with independent states, Brazil still had slavery. And it really took a revolution in Brazil to overthrow the regime that was largely backed up by the plantation owners and free the slaves. I was in Brazil some years ago and did a day tour of a beautiful country around Rio. Rio itself is a splendid, spectacular city, despite the problems of crime, which are really major. But it has the climate in a sort of a way of somewhere like central Queensland, perhaps even a bit like somewhere like Cairns. You can grow all sorts of crops there, especially sugar and cotton and various tropical fruits, and it's a beautiful country. And I did a day tour by bus to visit the places in the these hilly districts outside Rio. Rio itself is in a beautifully uh, located harbour and all around are jungle-covered hills. One of the places we went to was a great old Portuguese-built plantation, a, a beautiful building, by the way, and built 200 years ago and, and now kept as a museum of slavery and of early life. And the Portuguese brought out, as the Americans did, slaves from Africa. A lot of young Portuguese men, very young men, went out to Brazil to make their fortune and lived there and often went back to Portugal afterwards. But they also took part in a slave breeding exercise. And in this plantation, they had actually sort of... Um, uh, they called them stud books. And the... The women and, and the men who fathered children with them were all listed in the books and how many children woman I had had and who would be the fathers. And the Portuguese preferred to use white men as the fathers because it produced a, a race of half-castes, if I can use that word, which the Portuguese called mulattoes. Now, these were people of Portuguese and black origins, and the Portuguese had also enslaved the former Indian inhabitants. Now, all over South America, there were large Indian populations, and these were also enslaved. Today, if you go to the beach in Rio, and the beaches are beautiful, you see the product of this, an amazingly multicultural society. And the beach is full with the most beautiful young people. It's a feature of Rio, like Sydney in a way. And uh, the mixture of races now has produced a remarkably diverse population in Brazil, much more so than in the United States. And thanks to historian and author Brian McKinlay, and a little bit later, we'll be going back to Oscar to find out more about um, mining in El Salvador. But until then, let's hear from David Rovix. This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. 
That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. And it's a warm welcome back to Port Phillip Baykeeper Neil Blake. And Neil, plenty of areas to consider, but let's start with the election of Donald Trump. It solicited many emotions, mostly negative, but you'd like to focus on one aspect of what his presidency could mean. My observation, uh, I've been listening to radio and uh, various commentaries from people on television, etc., in the media, you know, during and leading up to the election, but also after it in particular, noted that there's been very little mention of the fact that uh, Trump is a a climate change denier of the highest order. <laughs> and this is possibly one of his worst attributes in terms of actual global impacts. You know, uh, And people are saying, oh, you know, maybe he'll grow into the job or something like that. But they're still not thinking, well, he's still a climate change denier. And uh, even though they might have hopes that he could not turn out to be not quite as bad as uh, they think he is, they're still not thinking about that issue. And it's extraordinary how that's... Uh, something that people who are supposedly quite intellectual and and savvy and aware still haven't got that topic on their radar. And I guess that's one of the um, things that uh, we're trying to do with um, the Port Phillip Baykeeper program is make people more aware of the fact that uh, climate change is happening and does have practical implications such as sea level rise. And the way we're doing that is involving local communities in measuring the profiles of beaches around the bay over time, so repeatedly so we can see where the change is occurring and actually measure it. How long a period do you need to actually show that difference? Or is it already happening? There will be seasonal changes, though, when we get particular wind patterns. In, in winter, for example, you get a lot of very strong northerly winds, more so than at the other times of the year, and that will move sand from different beaches and you know, relocate them elsewhere. But that sand may return over time. So ideally you'd want a couple of years, I suppose, to be able to show whether or not there's a trend of uh, just erosion occurring as opposed to just a seasonal change. How long have you been doing it for? Uh, we've done um, uh, 12 months in some beaches around the top of the bay, but to do it right around the bay, though, this is where we'd like to get more people actually involved in in doing it because it's a big bay. <laughs> it's a long way to get there to do a particular survey you know so, and and I guess that's what we're trying to do with our citizen science activities generally is come up with methods that people around the bay can uh, implement themselves you know, rather than letting somebody to come around and, and direct them including the things like the microplastics research etc so that uh, people on the spot can be really become the uh, the knowledge holders for their area where does that education start I guess, um, you know, the easiest people to involve are those who've got some time on their hands, you know, and uh, often retired people are great because they're out and they enjoy walking. 
walking along the beaches, they they naturally spend time there, and also they take the grandkids there. You know, so I think that's a, that's a really good segment of the population. The other key area, though, that we'd like to particularly get from the population is the young people between, say, 15 and 25, because um, that's quite a, a large percentage of the of the population, and uh, if we can get them becoming more understanding and literate of issues so it's not just sort of some sort of generic topic they're thinking about or global warming or whatever but they can actually speak you know articulately about the issue and that with detailed knowledge then they're going to influence their peers and uh, the point about it is that that age group are either just about to become of voting age or or are voting age and you know so their views and opinions for the environment are going to count young people of those ages have got a lot going on in their lives you're going to have a a bit of a a push there how do you do it how do you get onto those people (coughs) yeah it's pretty difficult and um you know i've been struggling a little bit to um get that group over 15 so there's a few that um will latch onto it but as you say they've often got other a lot of other things going on in their lives and uh so it's only going to be a relatively few, I suppose, who will um, be passionate about those sort of things and want to devote their time to that. The other option is through schools, though. So uh, if we can get schools in, say, from year nine through to 10 and 11, to, particularly to um, get involved in the programs, just to get a feel for it and uh, learn what to call things. And, yeah, <laughs> uh, that, and that's the big concern is that if people don't actually connect with their local environment, and get to know what that bird is called or, you know, what that mollusk species or whatever is called and, and why it lives there and what it's doing. They don't know that they're not going to talk about it. And if they don't talk about it, then it, it doesn't exist. Does that mean that you go out to the schools or do the schools invite you in to talk? Or you and some other people at the uh, Well, a bit of both, really, yeah. So um, um, the ideal is to actually be on the bay with the school group at an organised activity and that can be like some microplastic survey for example or we're doing live mollusk surveys in uh, sandy sediments so they're um, you know practical activities that can be um, used as a mass out of the classroom activity but also um, biology and uh, uh, there's a range of curriculum areas that that touch on those kind of activities so that's the key is finding uh, a way that fits in with what the school's goals are so that uh, our aims and their aims fit together. And when you get the, the young children or the the older children down by the, the beach, what are their main interests? What do they say to you, what they'd like to look at or study? Uh, they don't, actually. They don't? No. <laughs> they, just, they just generally have a good time. <laughs> But uh, I've found, though, that um, you know, it's interesting that collecting nurdles is something that seems to uh, really work well with them. Uh, You'll have to explain that one again. Well, nurdles are the pre-production pellets of plastic, which are little um, discs of plastic that are about five millimetres across and or a bit smaller, which could look like a, a grain of sand, a large grain of sand or gravel on the beach and often wouldn't even be recognised as an unnatural item by most people just walking along. But when you get a group of young people collecting them, uh, which involves just sort of um, running a stick through the seaweed and sand just to um, expose the noodles, they get right into it. It it, it does resonate with them that what they thought was 
a perfectly plain-looking beach has actually got this sort of insidious plastic pollutant on it, even though they didn't even see it there. And what does it pollute? All plastics, really, I guess, because they float and uh, they're highly mobile and travel widely uh, on wave action, can be swallowed by wildlife. They also adsorb toxins from uh, areas near land, from their sources, such as ports and areas like that where there might be chemicals and things that are built occasionally. And so they, apart from um, the fact that they will block up the, the gut of any animals, whether it be fish or seabirds, they also um, carries these toxins which will have a physiological impact on them too. And how do they get into the sea? They are often spilt on uh, loading bays in factories. Many factories around Melbourne that... Um, are injection moulding plants that make um, plastic objects, whether it be eskies or whatever. There's so many different things that are made of plastic these days. They all start out life as a bag of noodles arriving on a truck to the, the moulding plant. If the um, bag gets dropped or, and splits open, often uh, the noodles will um, escape because they are so light and uh, they're also round. They've got like a little wheel actually. So they, they travel very rapidly if they, they get picked up by the wind and also if it rains, uh, they float. So um, they can escape quite readily. So you'd have to have a pretty good drain system, wouldn't you, to stop them because they're so small? Yeah, that's right. Well, um, there needs to be... Uh, a trap somehow. Yeah, that, there are various mesh, meshes that can be um, used to, to capture them. So there's a bit of a project happening at the moment with Tangaroa Blue. They've got a, a nodal protocol called Operation Clean Sweep. Where and who are they? Tangaroa Blue, they're an organisation that's been campaigning about marine debris for um, quite a number of years now, probably at least 10 years or so. They also have a, a national database too. They coordinate a lot of beach cleanups around around the country. They're currently working on um, with factories around Melbourne or trying to recruit them into adopting practices that will prevent the noodles from escaping. And many of them, the factories are just uh, unaware or oblivious to the fact that the stormwater drains lead to um, lead to the bay. Need some education projects down there in the factory. <laughs> yeah, it's really quite strange, you know, that uh, people think that um, they don't know. Out of sight, out of mind. Yeah, where the stormwater goes. It's really probably because many of the, the stormwater drains are actually underground from, from there, so and they, they can't see a river nearby. So, yeah, yeah, it's just out of sight, out of mind. And does it lead to baby? birds or fish actually starving because they're eating these plastics even though the plastics mightn't be poisoning them they mm. think it's food they eat the noodles and they're not yeah, getting well, any certainly nourishment the case at all with, um, with seabirds is that uh, their parents are actually feeding plastic to their mm. chicks yeah so which is obviously a problem <laughs> not, not a good start in life yeah not really. so, uh, and the, the problem is too though there's just so much of it we as a global community uh, there was 311 million tonnes of plastic produced in 2014 and the projections are that that's going to just continue to increase um, over the next 10 years ago to go. There will be um, a, as much plastic produced in that 10-year period as there ever was before. Scary prospect, isn't it? It is, yeah. So we just needed to change our attitude and become a little bit more... So meanwhile, you know, we've got people like Donald Trump who are sort of, uh, and people in the Australian uh, 
hard right who are complaining about 18C and, you know, there's 200... Do you realise there's 280 Australians, good Australians, have been held up to account over with this uh, right to free speech thing? You know, they've actually insulted and uh, given people the uh, racist sort of uh, barrage and, and those 280 people have been really troubled by this and we need to talk about this more you know this is this is a real big issue jan i don't know how we can possibly continue like this we won't bother talking about climate change or or the fact that there's millions of tons of nurdles getting put into the oceans around the world absolutely we're just staying with trump for a moment what has obama done for the environment he certainly has been uh, consciously saying that we need to do something about climate change and rather than denying it as as an issue, you know, so I mean, that's a pretty good start. When you've got um, talks, pretty cheap though. Well, it might be, but the point about it is, at least the issue is being acknowledged, and rather than just shut down and saying, "Oh, let's let's build some more coal coal mines," you know, like so, uh, in that sense, you know, that, that that has to be seen as a positive sign. Well, he's going to employ all the. The ex-coal miners, that's now, isn't he? He's going to open the coal mines and they're all going to get their jobs back. Yeah, that's mm. right. That'd be good. And they can do it in Queensland. <laughs> open a few more in Queensland. <laughs> well, quite likely. But, uh, oh, well, hopefully that won't occur. I mean, no. I, People power, too, is pretty important. Yeah, I, I really think, too, that um, the, the majority of people are not in favour, you know, they, they do want to see something done about climate change, but there is a particular clique, I would call them elites, actually, <laughs> who actually are unrepresentative in the sense that they have managed to get seats in Parliament, even though uh, their, their views are not actually really adhered to by the majority of the populace. But that's just the way the system works, you know, so if you can have a senator that's got 77 votes, well, then there's something not quite right with the system. You're tuned to 3CR Community Radio. It's Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett, and I'm speaking with the Port Phillip Baykeeper, Neil Blake. You mentioned an environmental action group just a moment ago. You're concerned that there are those action groups all around the place, but they should be getting together? Yeah, I think that's that's really uh, a key thing that... Um, Tongue Roll Blue are a very good group that they've 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 got to develop the database for uh, documenting what types of um, plastic items and marine debris are actually getting into the oceans. There needs to be more cohesive campaigning from other groups though too who who are concerned about the issue of of um, plastic pollution, so that the good arguments can be made to put to legislative bodies to say, look, we really should be banning plastic bags. There's clear documentation here that's been gathered in a scientifically rigorous way to show that this is an ongoing, continuing trend of increasing plastic um, pollution from these items. So something's got to be done about it, you know, and it, and it requires leadership at a government level to, to do that. But if you haven't got that cohesive argument because everyone's been singing different songs <laughs> and not using the same terminology, for example, you know, then uh, it's going to be a little bit like white noise to the politicians and also the wider community who are still oblivious to the fact that there's an issue. You know. I'm very keen that uh, we create a dialogue with, with major campaign groups but also local community groups so that they're all using 
similar methods or at least adding value to what each other are saying rather than just shouting out loud and uh, trying to be heard. Are you getting any leadership from the state government? Well, state government have got some programs where they're looking at research into Port Phillip Bay, but at this point not very well resourced. Research In terms of funding, well, research into the impacts of plastic pollution on Port Phillip Bay, for example. But uh, that, as a project, is, is probably the, the, the amount of money that's going to be made available for that is, is relatively small. So, and when I say relatively small, I mean it, would, it would amount to maybe one half-day-a-week position for a, somebody to work for a year on the issue. Are the local councils more important? Well, local councils are really important um, because... Uh, they look after the day-to-day responsibility for uh, litter management on the streets, but they are generally not so concerned about smaller plastic items because they don't have people ringing up the town hall and saying, look, what are you doing about that biro or the bottle tops down there? On the, uh, the major illegal dumping is a big thing that local councils have got to deal with. You know, so people are dumping whole ute loads of <laughs> trash and... Uh, personal items as well as uh, furnishings and mattresses and things like that, you know, that are are major eyesores at at a local level and also costly to to deal with. And the thing about it is that the mattresses don't get washed down the drain and just disappear. So (laughs) that's more of a pressing matter for them, you know. So it's worth mentioning too, though, that um, just on that topic, that there was an inquiry into marine plastic pollution, a federal inquiry that was implemented in the past 12 months and submissions were called for in 2015 and to be in by October 2015 across Australia. There were over 200 submissions made to that federal inquiry. There was only probably about two that were from local government, even though (laughs) they're the organisation that's responsible for litter across the board, which is the main source of marine plastic pollution. It's not on their radar, partly because there's a lack of leadership and political will at a federal level, even though there was an inquiry and there were a number of recommendations that were made from that inquiry. They were still saying in the recommendations, oh, well, the issue about plastic bags, we, it looks, it's clear they should be uh, banned and that we believe the state should actually start discussing this immediately. But <laughs> there's still no directive coming to say ban them. So there's still processes required. Again, I would question where does the leadership start? If it's not going to come from a federal level, then it has to come from the community. It's got to come from the community, then the community needs to get its act together and start singing the same song rather than just all having their own little personal passions and the ways of going about things. What about the amateur and professional fisher groups? My observation is that um, the recreational angling community in general are pretty uh, oblivious to the issue. Uh, and certainly they quite a number of recreational anglers who leave a lot of trash around. That is their habit and, and, and I've sort of talked to them in my travels around the beaches and things and uh, I don't go preaching to them or anything but uh, I've noticed, you know, that even those who I've talked to who sort of say, oh, gee, it's, you know, I don't know why they do that, you know, but but they don't pick it up. Mm-hmm. They're not really doing anything to alleviate the problem, you know. So, I, And I think there needs to be a discussion really amongst user groups of the bay and and a recognition 
of the people who actually are doing something to protect the bay and what it offers us for everyone's benefit compared to those who just come and use it and take what they want out of it without actually put any anything back apart from maybe paying a fishing license and in that sense there needs to be a bit of a cultural shift that people actually see that you know that they're really lucky to have this resource you know and 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 they should be trying to look after it and demonstrate for the next generations that they actually do uh, care about the future for the next generation is there much difference between the different sides of the bay, the, the western, I suppose it's the west and the east, isn't it? Yeah, well, oh, well and you've got Corio Bay, which is a sort of almost a, a distinct... Well, there's actually about 16 bays in Port Phillip Bay, apparently. Really? <laughs> I haven't counted all? them all myself, but they're little ones in different configurations. Yeah. But uh, certainly, though, the main difference, though, is that the majority of winds and weather patterns come from the west. And so... The eastern shorelines are subject to the greatest of wave attack. The plastics and, and litter in particular tend to be concentrated on beaches in, in along the eastern, but northwestern as well. What about the heads now? What's happening there after the dredging, those beaches down near the heads? Yeah, well, uh, there is ongoing erosion down there. I was actually down at um, Point Lonsdale on the weekend, as a matter of fact significant loss of the beach down there but that's something to be honest which has been an issue for many many years prior to the dredging you know, loss of beaches at the front beach at Point Lonsdale was observed and Shortland Bluff which is around closer to Queen's Cliff as well so the beach is definitely uh, reducing there. I would say that you know the, the dredging is certainly exacerbating the loss of the beaches there. So this is going to take some time, though, before it, it plays out and we can confirm that, again, and this is where we need to have people doing some local uh, monitoring and recording beach surface levels so that we can show over time that it is occurring. I'd imagine the people down in those areas, they're fairly wealthy compared to a lot of other places around Melbourne. Do they get out and, and, and lobby their council, lobby different groups to save their beaches? Well, some do, yeah, that's, that's certainly the case, yeah. So at um, St Leonard's, for example, uh, you know, it's probably, I'm not sure about the demographics there, but, you know, like uh, it's probably not high-value real estate. But, uh, yeah, so Port C, uh, they're definitely uh, lobbying um, state government in particular. It's the state government that is, is uh, responsible ultimately for funding for beach renourishment programs. Yeah, there are people around around the bay who uh, are conscious of the change that's occurring, but uh, it's often difficult for them to articulate a very good case unless there is some good recording and to, to prove that what's happening with the trends in, in erosion. Some areas such as Portsea, you know, there's obviously massive erosion, erosion area and there's a, a group down there that's been lobbying the state government for some time to address the issues but um, that is going to be a very costly and major project so it's not something that will happen overnight. It's also a bit of an embarrassment I think from the government to uh, to say that um, there's been major damage which is quite clearly due to the dredging. 
uh, and uh, they'll be at pains to avoid <laughs> any kind of admission like that, I'm sure. So it, it, it's a political uh, situation down there. But I, I'm interested in, though, the bigger picture of increasing uh, beach erosion as a result of sea level rises generated by climate change, you know, and this is what we really, the bigger thing that we need to address because that's going to be affecting all foreshores around the bay, not just localised situations where storm surges related to dredging have been exacerbated. There will be beaches that will be lost and also habitats that will be lost. The organisms, the mollusk families that live in those sandy uh, seabed areas and play an important role in the, uh, the water quality in the bay and also the food chain yeah, sand's just not there for people to play on. That's right. Yeah, there's there's a massive, uh, you know, whole communities of species that are living in that sand that we don't even see. They're playing a, a really critical role in, in keeping the, the bay healthy. And those habitats are going to be lost and disrupted or relocated as a result of the changing uh, sea levels, particularly where there are sea walls that have been built. You know, so ordinarily if sea level rises in a natural kind of situation, then the, the, the um, shoreline populations and the, the beaches will migrate inland with the sea level rise. But where there's been uh, major built structures to prevent that, to protect infrastructure like roadways and car parks and all the rest of it, that are, or even buildings that are quite close to um, the, the actual shoreline, then that possibility of, of the whole community migrating further inland is not there. So that's the kind of disruption that we're going to be facing over the next 50 years or so, and uh, we need to be able to track that and see what we can do to actually try and retain the healthiest uh, situation. We mainly talk about the problems and the threats and what needs to be done. What are some of the successes that you've had over the last few years? I guess um, over the last few years... (laughs) One of the, the obvious successes that has occurred over 30 years is the St Kilda penguin colony is uh, is really uh, b- booming. You know, they uh, despite the fact that um, as a result of the dredging, uh, studies found that there were increased levels of lead and arsenic and mer- mercury in the St Kilda penguins after the dredging. Their breeding population is still maintained. You know, so uh, it appears that uh, impacts of that increased or release of uh, heavy metals into the food chain hasn't adversely affected the penguins. Their population has grown from 66 penguins in 1986 to over 1,300 now. And in a very urban situation, and it's a large penguin colony by penguin colony standards. You know, so it's interesting that that's been achieved really and largely because of thousands and thousands of volunteer hours and effort that community people have put into identifying issues and and trying to do something about them. That's a good example, I suppose, of of community power being focused and uh, actually working towards communicating with the wider community about the issues that are uh, faced by penguins living in an urban situation, and that includes plastics, also oil spills, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, that's really a good sign, and it's turned into a valuable economic asset to for, for uh, the St Kilda region, which uh, was never ever considered as a, a likely scenario in the past. And of course, the valuable asset is the ego centre. 
Well, yeah, the Echo Centre is uh, generating uh, thousands, tens of thousands of, of volunteer hours as well and uh, connecting communities, cross-sectoral partnerships, you know, where we're working with government agencies and engaging corporate groups into um, caring for the environment, but more importantly, learning about the issues, becoming literate about the issues and communicating them more widely. So we've had corporate groups, you know, down on the foreshore earlier this week collecting nurdles and people have never seen a nurdle before. That, As there is a greater awareness within the community about these issues, then it's going to make it easier for groups like Tungaral Blue to be able to go to the factories and say, look, you can lift your game here, it's not that hard, and there are people out there in the community that are concerned about it. If you don't lift your game, measures implemented to, to ensure that you do. And, of course, you're bringing a lot of young people into the centre as well. That's one of the things that I've found most heartening. We, uh, The Echo Centre had our annual general meeting a, a few weeks ago and there was a really great turnout of people there and... Uh, I felt most heartened to see just that there's particularly the number of younger people that are actually involved in part of the leadership. It's really important that that we give younger people a leadership opportunity so that they can, uh, you know, pursue their passions and shape the future in the way that's good for them. And you've got a particular young person there who's recently won an award. An award? (laughs) Geo, are you speaking? Uh, Gio's won quite a few, actually, yeah, so um, he's really remarkable, and uh, he did win the um, United Nations Association of Australia Individual Achievement Award in World Environment Day this year, and then the Cape Victoria Beautiful Awards, Sustainability Award too, so uh, he's extraordinary in his... uh, his knowledge, and 19 years old, and, and an encyclopaedia about uh, local species, whether they be um, uh, marine or terrestrial, fish, birds, plants, uh, <laughs> the whole thing. You know, so quite a unique young man, and uh, we'd love to see him be able to pursue his passion, because that's sort of where it all comes from, to uh, really influence and gather more and more followers. He's established a really great popularity amongst uh, a number of older, quite a number of older people from uh, around the region and um, yeah so it's really heartening to see that his words and his passion for the environment are being picked up on by the wider community and decisions made about the way that bits of the landscape are managed um, based on his passion and enthusiasm. Thanks Neil. Thanks Jen. And, of course, another passionate and remarkable person is none other than Neil Blake from the Eco Centre at St Kilda and the Port Phillip Baykeeper. We're going to finish the interview with Oscar now. Oscar is an El Salvadoran living in Australia and he's talking about the mining issues in El Salvador. mountainous country in El Salvador does that mean that when they had these mining operations they had to build dams and that the problem with the dams maybe the dams leak the dams break yeah because I mean the the terrain of the El Salvador which is is broken a lot of hills mountains and also we have a lot of a situation in which uh, um, earthquake a lot of uh, an imaginal consequences about nature, which uh, is very easy to break dams, rivers, which is overflow, 
think like that, you know, this is not what I said, this is not a country which a, a mining operation can be successful without, uh, uh, you know, affecting the, the high population because of the small country towns, uh, they are not far away each other. So because of the size of the country, that's the other geographical situation which uh, is affecting this kind of operation. So this is an ongoing situation in which other companies which were outside of the mining areas, which uh, companies coming from uh, other countries and, and put some of the uh, factories for batteries for cars, and then they left the contaminated area, which is they didn't take any responsibilities, and then they left it to the government to, take, to carry out those clean-up. Can we go back to when Pacific Rim, which is now Oceanic Gold, set its eyes on El Salvador to begin mining for gold and, and um, silver. Who was the government at that time? Well, the government at that time was the right-wing, extreme right-wing arena, arena, which uh, was Francisco Flores, was one of the presidents, which uh, was uh, put in prison and then left, uh, you know, because of, uh, of uh, corruptions, every level, uh, and also thus when they gave the license, not for operation, it's just for trying just to find out whether finding any gold, silver, and other, uh, other stuff, which uh, was given the permit. The, the, the permit. So after the permit and then the following government from the same party, Arena, came in power again, which uh, was Tony Saka. So this stopped the license. So that's, that's when the whole problem started. Then the companies were not happy because they knew that they found some large uh, mining, which was mainly gold and other materials. So I think that's when they started. And then the following government, which was the first left-wing government from the FMLN, which uh, ratified you know, the non-operation for mining. That's the, the, the situation that uh, ended up in a big uh, lawsuit against the El Salvador because of uh, Pacific Rim and Oceanic Gold, which later on joined. That's the, uh, when they put uh, in a very difficult uh, situation because, um, you know, the 300 millions that they were looking for, which was taking away a big piece of the whole budget for one year, which is cover the health and education. Can you describe the area where they were prospecting and were the people consulted or...? Because we are aware, everybody knows as well, in other countries in the area, which uh, the big corporation uh, uh, came in uh, and then they start uh, working with people in the small towns, convince them just to that the mining can bring a good uh, outcome for everyone, such as employment education, health, you know, things like that. So that was one of the main principles, uh, just to engage with the population, you know, just to carry out uh, the, and convince people living in those areas that the mining is a good outcome for them. That's why they set up small agencies. They set up a small army just to convince those people, and then they set up small clinics, bringing one doctor, you know, just to show them 
that they uh, were acting in a good phase and helping themselves. So I think it does when create a division between the population because uh, they uh, some of the opponents say, well, this is not uh, this is just a, a, a short uh, response from those miners. But what happened after that? So I think that's when they started. So then the uh, population start to organize themselves, you know, just to make consultations amongst residents whether or not they want to uh, accept mining operation in those areas. So that's when uh, the uh, consultation amongst members in each community, they, they participated, and then there was very well monitored, well supervised by governments and also by international uh, participants in which uh, they decided not to go ahead with the mining. So I think it does, does reinforce uh, the government as well, in which a uh, government in principle say, well, mining operation is not viable for El Salvador, unfortunately, because of the geographical situation in high-populated uh, countries. So, and then that's when uh, didn't like it. And still, those mining, Oceana Gold, still operate in a situation that uh, trying to convince still people in those areas that still mining is a good uh, outcome for themselves, which is uh, this uh, the later on information came out that, uh, you know, they still they are using the same tactic just to convince people, just to to accept in a near future if any government change, probably they're going to change the uh, law in allowing them. But this is... Uh, uh, a situation which everybody is concerning about because maybe another government from right wing can say, okay, go ahead, regardless of the consequences of uh, the uh, population in those areas. Was there violence against those who were opposing the mining company? The violence, that's one of the tactics, using local people and putting against each other, those who are in favour and those who, who are against. So that's when uh, they started using, obviously they got the money, they got the power just to influence and also buying people to carry out some dirty things against other people. So as a consequence of that, there were about three or four people were killed, kidnapped and killed later on. So I think uh, uh, there is, still there is uh, trying just to find out who, who are those who carry out uh, the killing. And still, uh, the companies are liable for that because, I mean, they were operating in those areas. And there are witnesses as well in which uh, those people were, in one sense or another, were involved in certain levels and also meeting with some of the representatives in El Salvador, which were local as well. But it didn't put people off protesting. Yeah, that's that's correct. So um, in that situation people were because they were in mass that's why they were more powerful uh, because so they they organized themselves you know the grassroots response was a, a good outcome just to to stop any uh, the big corporation just to be more more aggressive in some sense so that's why because the majority of the population was against it so I think uh, that was uh, the good consequences, the, the good outcomes for the uh, local people that they organized themselves and they responded to with force as well, you know. So obviously using the uh, 
uh, rallies and protesting, also calling from uh, other outsiders from other countries and to let them know about the uh, consequences of that and also what was happening at that time. How important was the outside help? Oh, that was very indeterminate uh, help because uh, without them, you know, this could be isolated from the rest. Oh, because the media didn't want to to, to put on, on those news, you know, even the local media because uh, most of the population in El Salvador, the majority was not aware until people coming from overseas, from Canada, U.S., Australia, and some of Europe, so they start joining, and also they start putting or sending messages everywhere, even uh, some of the uh, people who have a good profile, you know, so just to bring up and to make it as a big news, because uh, the local media didn't want it to, to bring up amongst the uh, Salvadorian uh, population because um, they knew that uh, once they know about the what they're going to lose, what they're going to get, so that's when they, they could react in a very more uh, big way. Did the people expect that the, this mining company would take them to court? They didn't know exactly if they could take to court. So until, again, the people from uh, other countries were involved and then they started you know, supporting the cause. And then uh, that's when uh, they uh, they brought up, you know, and also people start to know about the uh, the uh, demand and the consequences of going into court because there was no other way how people, how the population could be informed. Because uh, if we, uh, the La Mesa uh, that uh, is uh, people from those areas were actively working just to uh, bring up this and explain the population about the uh, um, the court taking to court uh, this uh, uh, decision by government not to allow them to carry out the mining operations. In that case, they started to know about this uh, um, court. They were not aware whether or not they could take it to to uh, the international court. That's why we are or we believe that uh, the. Um, people from overseas, from other countries, they were very, very actively and also important, you know, just to take up, you know, and to bring up to every different levels in every, in every country where they were working. The lawsuit started at 77 US million. It ended up 301 million, yep. they were claiming. How did that figure get to 301 million? Because uh, everything started from the Pacific Rim, you know, when they were, then the Oceanago, they came uh, later on, and they bought the litigation, you know, and they paid 76 millions, and then they probably could be the winners at the end, because they believe, maybe, they believe that they're going to invest 76 million dollars and get 300 millions, if the court decide in favor, they will still continue operating and making millions. But, you know, I think uh, in, in that situation, I think it was a good outcome for El Salvador because taking out the three million from the budget so could impact greatly those uh, people or those people who are in a very disadvantaged situation. Because uh, 
currently, you know, Salvador is a high unemployment, lack of investment because of so many things. So I think this could put more in a difficult situation to the uh, Salvador society. There was, uh, in one way, a good outcome, but still the uh, company has to pay back to El Salvador $8 million. Still, they haven't done it. And the El Salvador government spent $12 million to defend the cause. But still, still waiting when they're going to pay the $8 million to the government of El Salvador. That's why it's very important just to still keep in pressure on Oceana Gold just to carry out what the court has decided to pay back the liability cost, which is about $8 million. What has it meant for the people of El Salvador to have to go through this long process, seven years this court case took? Well, this uh, situation, unfortunately, diverted the situation where the main problems are at the moment. Then government spent a lot of uh, money just to be represented by international lawyers and also local lawyers, and then divert you know, the focus on the main issues the population facing at the moment. So... I think it's putting more stress to the government, which uh, the current government also is trying, is just trying to bring, you know, every possible resources to the population who are in most disadvantage. So that's why put, you know, those people in a waiting period, if you call it like that, you know, in a wait period until the, this uh, situation sorted out. Apart from that, you know, having this kind of external problem plus the internal problem, which is the right wing, which is making hard for the government just to get access to borrow money and to continue with the social help, which is about health, education, you know, and also the creation of jobs. So I think that's the consequences of uh, putting behind, you know, and to bring up some way of uh, resources or put resources to those who are in a most and very disadvantaged uh, situation in El Salvador. It's now more than a month since the findings. Yeah. Why hasn't the $8 million been paid? Well, this is w- what is happening now in El Salvador and also around the world, just to make sure that the Oceana Gold has the responsibilities to pay the $8 million uh, to the, the government, you know. So I think uh, that's what, uh, you know, in one way or another, still they are using a kind of tactics, you know, putting a bit of pressure, trying to get something out of this situation. Nobody knows when they're going to pay. Even there is no official announcement from the Oceana Gold saying, okay, we're going to pay the millions next month or two months or whatever. Still nothing is clear. That's why still in El Salvador people are working, you know, just to keep on going the pressure onto those corporations just to pay the $8 million. Looking more broadly at El Salvador at the present time, after decades of civil war and right-wing governments, how is society, how is peace and security in El Salvador now? The problem is that uh, previous governments, they didn't follow up the post-war. After the civil war, you know, after that displacement, people were hurt by, you know, the, the civil war. There was not planning, there was not a plan just to bring up or put in place some strategies just to carry out 
the consequences of, of the war, you know, and to take on into the post-war just to avoid uh, what we have at the moment. The consequences of that is that we have now the population, especially the young generation, which uh, they don't have uh, any chances just to set up their own uh, experiences from parents and all stuff because parents left the country then they were living in, in the country without any supervision, without any assistance, you know. And then now, apart from that, after the government from the United States decided to send people back to El Salvador, which were part of the uh, migration at that time, they came back to, to El Salvador, which uh, they didn't have any families, they didn't have any resources there, so, and they... What they did is just to survive, and, they, and then they start to organize themselves in gangs, you know, what they call maras. So this uh, situation has put the whole society, even the government, which has now become an international news that, uh, you know, unsafe situation in El Salvador because of uh, the gangs-related situation, which is killing each other and also killing innocent people, in briberies, you know. So, and also we have to add a little bit of the uh, the uh, traffickers, you know, from uh, Colombia or South America, using Central America as a passage to the United States, taking drugs and all the stuff. So there are so many uh, issues amongst societies in Central America, especially in El Salvador which is the security of the society, which is uh, paramount, which, uh, you know, um, they are spending millions of dollars just to sort out the situation. But again, this is a situation which the United States has to blame in, in certain areas because they start sending back people who were most of the, their own age, most of the early age, and they grew up there speaking English, everything. So they send it back to El Salvador, which they didn't have any contact with it they didn't have any you know, families where they can assist them so then they didn't have any other decision that to organize themselves to survive that's what we we have now the consequences of that what about the coup in neighboring honduras back in 2009 how has that impacted on el salvador is that drugs coming through el through honduras as well Yes, they, that's what I'm saying. They're using Central America, you know. So Honduras is part of the situation. Even Guatemala and El Salvador, that's what they call triangle. The triangle uh, situation in which the United, United States now is helping those countries, which is Honduras, Guatemala, and El, and, and El Salvador, just helping them, you know. So putting some money just to sort it out some of the or just to bring up or put money some uh, the uh, uh, to develop some areas which are never had. So and then that's part of the strategy, you know, just to avoid people leaving the countries because of lack of work, lack of employment, you know, and, and insecurity. So I think that's that's why at the moment, you know, so you know, United States has to play an important role here, especially financially, just to contain the uh, migration from Central America from these three countries mainly because of insecurity. What are your concerns with the victory of Trump in the US? I know media is also portraying things which is 
footing in one way or another, uncertainty, you know, that's what will happen, you know. And then people, they start believing that when Trump now in power, Jim right wing, that they're going to start to sending people back to those countries. People are very concerned about that, you know. But media also influence. We are aware about Trump, uh, you know, uh, but people which is don't have much knowledge about uh, the situation. That's when the people, they start uh, become very concerned about the situation, about Trump victory in the United States, because uh, media always put in on people's mind that uh, what is coming will be the worst things for the country or for any other country in Latin America. So unless you find some other sources and just to balance the message that the uh, mainly principal big media is putting on people's in mind. So then we we just, in one way or another, are worrying to the extreme way. Obviously, there are some worries about Trump in power because we don't know what will happen. Finally, Oscar, every fourth Friday of the month for the past nearly four years, there's been a demonstration outside Oceana Gold's headquarters yep. in Collins Street in the city. Yep. The case is over, yet you are continuing your protests. Yeah, we will continue uh, because of this bond or lack of response from the Oceana Gold to pay back the $8 million. So there is another issue which I've now been informed, in which they still are using local people who are in favour just to continue with their own strategies to convince more people that mining is a good outcome for themselves. Still, they are working, you know, but not in a very open area, but they are using the same strategies, bringing people some level of uh, assistance, such as the clinics, open clinics, uh, bringing one doctor and other staff. So I think that's what the way they want to buy the goodwill of people in those areas. So I think that's a, a big concern, but obviously people, they are organizing themselves over there. And a final word? Well, my final word is just to, well, still we are fighting just to, up to the end, just to find out exactly what will be the final outcome and to stop Oceana Gold just to get out of the country. Simple as that, because, I mean, any other big companies also, they are not welcome, because especially El Salvador is not a country that can survive having a mining operation everywhere, because it will be a catastrophe for the people itself. And that was Oscar Fuentes from El Salvador, talking about the situation in El Salvador and the stopping of the Oceana Gold mine there. This Friday is the next rally outside the building where Oceana Gold has their headquarters. It's at 357 Collins Street in the city. The demonstration starts at 12. It doesn't go for long, but I invite anyone to come along. 357 Collins Street to vent your anger at Oceana Gold, not only for not paying the amount that they were ordered to pay, but also, to, as Oscar just said, to still being in the country, trying to divide and rule the population there to make sure that they 
stay there and get their mind up. Solving our job agency crisis, an unemployed workers' union event, this Sunday, 27th, 2pm to 6pm. 2pm, job agency stories from both sides of the counter, soaring penalties and bullying in a no-jobs market. 3pm, launch of the Unemployed Workers' Union Hotline report, followed by refreshments. 5pm to 6pm, panel discussion. Free unemployed workers' rights booklets will be available. Solving our job agency crisis. This Sunday, 27th, 2pm to 6pm. Unitarian Church, 110 Gray Street, East Melbourne. Unwaged free, $5 waged. Unemployed Workers Union, a 3CR supporter. That's all for me for today. I will be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock. Stay tuned in about one and a bit minutes for Done By Law. Bye for now.